Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we can get together and, and worship as a church family. We thank you for the people who are watching online as well, that, that we would all gather together, that we would worship you, that we'd praise you in song and, and in your word now. And we know that, that just reading these words, that, that they are just mere words to us unless you are at work in our hearts. And we pray that today, that you would make this real to us, that you'd make your word alive to us, and that you would make us aware of the work of the Spirit in us as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to be starting a new series going through uh, Elijah and Elisha over the next little while. Um, we will be going through five weeks on different highlights from those stories. And I'm very excited because in a few weeks, Jesse's actually going to preach. And it'll be his first time preaching. Uh, so I'm very excited to see that and, and, and support him in that. But part of what we want to do is, is look at this time in the, the history of Israel where there was this transition in leadership, this transition in what was happening in the nation. And as we transition, we want to learn from what God did back then so that we can move forward and honor God in what we're doing now in our transition. And so today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 17. And I really want to focus on, on this, following God in a world that doesn't. This Past week, I was mowing the lawn. Actually, I guess this would have been a week ago. I was mowing the lawn, and I have a gas lawnmower. And as I was going, I could hear it starting to give out. And I decided, oh, we'll just keep trying, and we'll go as long as we can. And the girls, my daughters, were watching as I was mowing the lawn. And as I was going, eventually, it just stopped. It just died. The lawnmower ran out of gas. I burnt it all out. And the worst part about that was Avi, my, my six-year-old daughter, came up to me and was like, you did it again, didn't you? <laughs> the fact that this is not a rare occurrence in my, my life. Uh, but I ran out of gas. And, and in running out of gas, most of the yard was not done yet. I probably got through like half of it. I still had to do another half of the backyard and then the front yard. And I just had run out of gas. I couldn't move forward anymore. I couldn't do anything. There was all of this job left to be done. And I was just thinking through that and thinking through how the lawnmower just ran out of gas. There was no way to move forward. And how often in life do we get to that place where we just run out of gas? We run out of fuel. We can't move forward anymore. On Thursday, our summer students who uh, are helping put together all the camp stuff and, and running that camp summer uh, ministry program, they got to go over to St. Lawrence and, and help run the fun day at St. Lawrence that they do every year. And they went over at 9 a.m. They got back here just after 2 p.m. And it was chaos. There were kids running around everywhere. Uh, the the uh, people leading the activities sometimes didn't know what they were supposed to do. And so our leaders would go to the activities and try to figure them out and then teach the kids what to do as they were trying to lead them and keep them all together. And at the end of that day, around 2.15, when they came back, all of them just dropped to the floor around the fridge in the, the staff office area, pulled out an old pizza, and just sitting on the floor started eating it because they were exhausted. They were done. One of them was just lying on the ground. I had to check his pulse to make sure he was still alive. They were just done. They, were, they burnt out all of their energy. They needed a rest. And then I had to tell them, by the way, the chairs aren't done. See ya. Um, and so they got up and did the chairs after they rested for a while. 
But have you ever been there where you just feel like, I can't move forward, I can't do anything, I can't finish the job that's ahead of me because I have no energy left? One of my favorite things, I've said this before, is musicals. Hamilton, one of my favorite musicals. And in that musical, there's uh, the song, uh, One Last Time, which is George Washington uh, letting Alexander Hamilton know he's not running for president a third time, he's retiring. And one of the cool things in that song as it gets to the end is they actually took the manuscript of that farewell address and they put it into the song. They took the, the conclusion after George Washington goes through all of these things he wants the country to know as they move forward, he ends with some of these words. He writes this, and these are his hopes as he moves on. After 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion. So he's saying, if I've made any mistakes, if I've done anything wrong, I hope as time moves on that people will forget them, that all of my inabilities, my incompetent abilities will be moved into oblivion. And then he says this, as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. This is a guy who spent most of his life serving his people, right? 45 years. When he, when he read this, he was 65. So from the ages of 20 to 65, everything he had done was serving his people. And he gets to this point and says, I'm, I'm ready to go home. The mansions of rest was a way of talking about heaven. And you can see how he's excited. The thing he's most excited about going into God's glory is that rest. This is somebody who had spent everything he had and says, I'm ready for rest. Two years later, he would, he would go to those mansions of rest. We get to that spot where we can't move forward, where we feel like we have nothing left to give. But the difference between us and, and George Washington, you can retire from a job. You can't stop living in this world as a follower of Christ. And so what do we do when we hit that point where we feel exhausted, where we feel drained? Knowing that we're called to follow God in a world that has nothing to do with him. Knowing all of the challenges that come. The programs that we volunteer at our work and our jobs, our family life, and everything that's going on there. When everyone seems to be against us, when, when we have to have conversations justifying why we believe what we believe, when we have to go out and try to live different than a lot of the people around us, when everything seems to weigh on us, how do we keep moving forward? And that's what we're going to look at in 1 Kings chapter 17 here today as we look at the beginning of Elijah's ministry and his calling to be a prophet for the Lord, someone who speaks God's word. And so if you're in that place today where you feel tired, where you feel drained, like, like living a life of, of God is, is wearing you out because of all of the surrounding circumstances around you, or even if you're here today and you just feel tired from life in general, I want you to listen. I want you to look at what God does for Elijah and through Elijah here today as he challenges us to continue to follow him when we have nothing left as he challenged us to continue to reveal the love of God to those around us, even when it's exhausting us, and how we can know to trust him and keep doing that. 
So I'm going to read through the passage, and then I want to walk through it together. So if you have your Bibles, if you haven't already, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. These are, what we, this, these are the words we find there. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, eastward, and I spend too much time at soccer, eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah." Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So let's go back to the beginning here. Let's walk through this passage together. And as we go through it, the first thing I want you to see here is that if we want to find the power and the ability to keep going in an exhausting world, if we want to make a difference to the world around us, the first thing we need to know is this. The Lord is my God. 
This is what we see right from verse 1. The Lord is my God. This is what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is what God is showing us. This is what we need to see. The Lord is my God. We might not understand all the context here, but there's something powerful going on. One of the commentaries said that this is the start of a God war. This is now Yahweh versus Baal. This is what we're going to see. See, in this passage, in, in this verse, when Elijah goes to Ahab and he, and he says these words, this is what he's saying. This is from, from Dale Ralph Davis. Elijah is saying that Yahweh is going to inflict the covenant curses upon Israel for her covenant breaking. Moses had warned that if Israel worshipped other gods, Yahweh would, among other things, shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you might say, well, that's a lot to get out of one sentence. But, but this is why. This is what's going on. We need a little context here. We need to understand who Elijah is talking to. Who is Ahab? So this is King Ahab, and we find out about him just in the end of chapter 16. This will tell us everything we need to know about what's going on. King Ahab was a king in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And he was married to Jezebel. And this is what it says. Oh, wait, this is cool. This is one of the things that I love about, about the Bible is through archaeology, we're able to find things that support what we find in the Bible. So in the next slide, here, here it is. We have this monolith. And this is from an Assyrian king, King Shalmaneser III. And in the 1800s before Christ, or in the 800s before Christ, King Shalmaneser, he went to battle against a group of other kings. And he wrote about his battle on that stone. I keep, we got to get that fixed. That's my natural tendon. Now I got to switch hands. Uh, he wrote about his battle. And in that battle, he mentions that one of the kings he went up against was King Ahab of Israel. And King Ahab, in his writing, was one of the strongest ki kings he went up against. 2,000 chariots, 10,000 soldiers. We have this evidence that we found from outside of the Bible talking about this specific time that we're going at. And as we read God's word, we can know that it's true. We have the support that we found that there was this King Ahab, that he was strong, that he was powerful. And what we're going to see is that he's also evil. See, 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29, says this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he, uh, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only uh, considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Now that's going to come up later. I'm going to quiz you, so we'll see who remembers that. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made a sherapole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. 
this is a bad man. This is a bad king. This is somebody who's supposed to be leading the people of Israel, and he's bringing them astray. He's built a temple to a foreign god, Baal, and started worshiping him and getting others to worship him. He's married a, a, a woman from another tribe, another, another nation, and adopted their cultures to cement his power. He's, he's, he's created a peace treaty through marriage where he says, the, the promises of God are not enough to keep me safe. I'm going to go outside and, and, and join forces with another country who serve another God, and we're going to be like them because with them we'll be safer. And he's going around creating this worship in his land. And it says here he finds it trivial to commit the sin of Jeroboam. So we're going to go back even further, two more chapters, into 1 Kings 14. And here we find out what the sin of Jeroboam was when it says, But you have not been like my servant David, who, cut, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who have lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. And so that was what Jeroboam did. And now we have Ahab bringing it even further. And the God that he's getting them to worship is Baal. And this is important for understanding what's going on here. See, Baal was the Canaanite God of rain and fertility. Fertility for people, but also for the land. Baal was the king of the gods in, in their culture. They, they worshiped many gods, but Baal was the most powerful. He was the one who was crowned. He was the one with all of the power. He was the one who could defeat all the other gods. And he was the one who brought rain. And in, in ancient Israel and that surrounding area, there were just two rain seasons throughout the year. And those rain seasons were the time when, when Baal would, would bring forth his power where he would conquer the god of death, Moat, and he'd come back to life and he'd bring that rain. And through his rain, the crops would grow and the people would be taken care of. And so as King Ahab has brought the Israelites together, he's turning them from worshiping Yahweh to this Baal, the god of the rain, the god of fertility. And it's a way of saying we trust in these promises of these people, of this fake God, more than we trust in the promises of our living God. This is the context that Elijah gets called into. These people of God running astray, turning to other promises, turning their backs on the Lord, trusting this rain God. And in that, with that knowledge... This is what Elijah says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Do you see what he's doing? He said, you've trusted Baal. You've trusted this rain God. But he's not real. They're fake promises. He's an image made out of metal. He can't do any, you can kick him over. He can't do anything for you. And furthermore, if a God can be killed, then he's not really the true living God. And we find ourselves in a similar situation in today's age. With all of these promises of where we can find value and meaning and importance, all of these other things that, that people tell us, chase after power, chase after money, chase after relationships, have the best perfect family that you can have. Chase that success, and you'll be truly happy. You'll be taken care of. 
we, like the Israelites at that time, are thrown these fake gods, these fake promises all around us. And it's draining, sorting out which ones that we follow through and, and how do I know which one is the real one and, and where do I turn when I have all of these things being thrown at me? Is it my career? Is it my family? Is it my relationships? Is it how much people like me? Is it how good I am at something? I don't understand where to turn to. And in the light of all of that, in the light of all of the idolatry going on, we have Elijah. And just in his name, he's telling you, God is telling you where to turn. Because the name Elijah means Yah is my God. Yahweh is my God. You can promise me whatever you want through Baal, through Jezebel, through her dad. I know the only place I can go, the only place worth living is in Yahweh, my God. And did you notice he says this? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, right? He doesn't need to die and come back to bring rain every season. He brings rain just because he says so. He's in control of all nature. Whom I serve, right? This is Elijah. The Lord is my God and I serve him. That's who we're called to be. The first thing we need to know if we want to live and follow God in a world that doesn't around us is the Lord is my God. Yahweh is my God. That is the center of who I am. That is who I turn to when I need that provision. That is who I turn to when I feel like I'm, I'm being drained. That is who I turn to to know how to live and how to serve and how to follow him in a world that has nothing to do with him. Yahweh is my God. And so here, just, just like that, Elijah is called. He's sent into this ministry to be a prophet in one of the most challenging times in all of, hi all of the history of Israel with the most evil king they've ever had who's trying to pull everyone astray with him. But the good thing is, that God doesn't just send Elijah and say, go do it. No, God provides for him. And the second thing we see here, as we're trying to follow the Lord in a world that doesn't, is that the Lord sustains us. The Lord sustains us. So sustained, he sustained Elijah, and he sustains us as well. See, as we keep continuing, it says, uh, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine. The, the first thing that he does is he protects Elijah. See, Ahab and Jezebel are not happy that Elijah has called them out, that Elijah has called their God fake, that Elijah is trying to get Israel to follow the true living God and not this fake God, Baal. And so they want Elijah dead. And so the first thing God does is, is he says, go, go to this brook, go to this ravine, Right? Go to the Kareth Ravine. And, and that's important for us to understand. See, I grew up in, in Burlington with a ravine behind my house. And that ravine was in the middle of the forest. It was green everywhere. Um, it was kind of peaceful and nice. That's not the, the ravine we're talking about here. Um, it actually looks more like this, right? It's rock and desert and then a little bit of water in the middle and like, I don't know, six trees? Right? It's not like a nice, he's not on a, a a, a vacation here. 
But what you do see is there's a lot of rock, there's a lot of cliff. This, this Kareth Ravine, or, or the Kareth Wadi, as you would say, is kind of this area where there's a cutout in the ground, and during the rainy seasons, it would fill with water, but during the dry seasons, it would just dry up completely, right? You could walk in it, you could walk around. The water is only there temporarily. And so it's, it is a good place for hiding. It's a good place for water during the rainy season. And what God is saying is, you're going to follow me. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to send you to this place where you will be safe. And he's going to send ravens to feed Elijah, which is interesting because twice in the Torah, when you're reading through the law of God, ravens are considered unclean. They're unclean animals. Elijah can't eat them, but God's going to use them to deliver food to him. In the morning and in the evening, they're going to bring him bread and they're going to bring him meat. And it's interesting to me that God is going to use this unclean animal to provide for his prophet. That there's nothing that is outside of what God is willing to use. He's, he's willing to use unclean animals. He's willing to use you and me to provide for people as well. God is, God is showing us by using these ravens that, that he can do anything with anyone, anytime. And we might sit here and be like, oh, God's, God used Elijah. He's a prophet. He's not going to use me. He sustains the prophet with the ravens. If he's willing to use ravens, he's willing to use you. And so we need to listen. But through all of this, God has given Elijah a message and then said, I'm going to sustain you through this. I'm going to make sure that my message is delivered by keeping you alive. When we're trying to live for God, we need to make sure that we keep coming to him for that provision. We need to keep coming to him so that he will sustain us. We need to keep coming to him so that we would know the love that he has for us to keep us moving forward. We need to go to his word so that we would know how to live and how to preach and how to share the gospel. We need to stay in prayer as he gives us his power and his energy through the Spirit to live out what he's called us to. And it's important for us to know here that as much as this is about keeping Elijah alive, this is about keeping his word and making sure it does not fail too. He has declared that through Elijah, he will announce when the next rain comes, and only through Elijah will that next rain comes. And so keeping Elijah alive is about keeping his word true. And what we see here is God will never let his word fail, even if it means using a temporary water source and some ravens to keep that word going. We can trust that God will be true to what he calls us to. But it gets better. And by better, I mean it gets better for us in the promise that we see here, but worse for Elijah. Um, as we keep reading here in verse 7, this is what we see. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So what I want us to see as we keep moving, as we go forward, is that not only does the Lord sustain us as we seek to follow him in this world that is far away from him, but the Lord sustains us even when it's difficult. The Lord sustains us even when it's difficult. You see, Elijah went to that brook, and he was enjoying the water. He's being fed by ravens. But what we see here is just because you're following God does not mean you're immune to the effects of sin around us. Just because you're honoring God doesn't mean you're going to be safe from all of the bad things that can happen in this world. 
the rain stopped, and that in, impacted Elijah as well as everybody else. The brook dried up. The ravine dried up. It went away. That water source is gone. And so even though Elijah's honoring God, following through in this calling that he has, he's impacted by the fact that he lives in a broken world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to because of the sin of the people. And you and I need to know that as well. We might be following God as, as best as we can, and, and none of us are perfect. All of us need the grace of God, but we, we might be doing our best to honor God and move forward. That doesn't mean we're going to have a safe, perfect life. That's not what Elijah gets, and it's not what we're promised either. But God finds another way, gives another way to provide for Elijah. As that brook dries up, God sends him somewhere else. He says, then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So I'm going to put this up. There's a map here I want to show you. It's going to be hard to see. But Gilead, where Elijah was, is kind of just northeast of the Dead Sea there. Um, I believe it's written in blue on the map if you can see it. But it's in Israel, right, that dark in the middle. And he gets sent to Sidon, which is up in Phoenicia. It's another country where it gets lighter right along the edge of that, that body of water there. Now, does anybody who remembers, anybody heard Sidon at all in this message so far today? Does anybody catch that word? What's Sidon? Who's, who's from Sidon? Jezebel. So this is God's plan. Listen, the brook dried up. The ravens are not going to feed you anymore. Instead, I'm going to send you to the heart of your enemy's country and provide a widow to take care of you. Right? A widow, which at that time, a widow with a son would have almost zero hope of having any real provision for her. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's the way it was. It's basically, I'm sending you to your enemy's country, and I'm going to use the, the lowest tier of person who has no real expendable um, material for you to take care of you. It's not going to get any more intimidating, any more harsh, or any more scary for Elijah than this. He's going right into the heart of Jezebel's home, right into the heart of the people who worship Baal, right in the heart of the people who Ahab turned to in his idolatry. And yet, God says, I will take care of you there. It might not be what you expected when you signed up for this job. It might not be what you wanted, but I will care for you there. So he's told that's where he's going to go. And so he goes. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? Now, as Elijah goes to the city, he'd have to go through the city gates. And the city gates would be where those in need would gather. Because that's where the most foot traffic is going to be. And if you're a widow with a son, your only chance of surviving is the generosity of other people who are going to care for you. And so if you want the best chance, you go to where the most people are. You go to the gate where people are going to walk by you and you ask them for their grace. You ask them for their favor. And this is where Elijah finds this widow that God has called to take care of him. At the city gates gathering sticks so she can build a small fire because nobody is taking care of her. 
and he asks her for water. And then as she goes to get it, he pulled a move my dad did on me many times growing up. See, it took me years to figure this out. But my dad would do this thing where he would send me to the kitchen to go get either a can of pop or popcorn or something. And then he would do this. Oh, by the way, while, you, while you're there, why don't you bring me one too? Right? Classic move. Really, he just wanted a drink. He would send me to do it. And so Elijah says, okay, go get me some water. And then while you're there, can you bake me some bread? Right? Just bring me some bread. And this is the response he gets. This shows you how desperate of a situation both he and the widow are in. As surely as the Lord gives life, sorry, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. And listen to this. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah is asking for her last meal, her last meal with her son. Her plan is to go home, feed herself, feed her son so that they're comfortable, not thinking that they're going to live very much longer. This is who God has sent to provide for Elijah, somebody who's not even able to provide for herself and her son at this moment. And yet what we see here is that the Lord will sustain us even when it's difficult. Even when it looks like there's no way forward, like I don't have anything left to give, God says, I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to provide for you. And we learn a lesson here that is incredibly important from a handful of flour and a little olive oil. That's all she has. But this is what God, as, as she pours this out to Elijah, opens up and says, I'm, I'm on death's door. This is what Elijah says. Sometimes prophets should not be the one who do shepherding care in our churches. Uh, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Not how I would start that conversation. Somebody said, I'm going to go make my last meal and then die. And he's like, okay, go home and do whatever you just said. But then he says this. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make, uh, make something for yourself and your son, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. He says, listen, I need you to take a leap of faith here. I need you to trust me. And do you notice how he says that the Lord, the God of Israel, he's acknowledging that you don't believe in this God. You don't know this. You don't know the Lord. He is not your God. You have not accepted him as your Lord. But I want you to trust him. Make me some bread. And as you trust him, God will keep caring for you. Because that flour is not going to run out and that oil is not going to run dry. He will care for you. He will provide for you. In a world where no one else is taking care of you, everyone has turned their back on you because you're useless to them. You can't offer them anything, and so they're not caring for you. The Lord cares for you. God loves you, and he sees you, and he, make, he will make sure that you are cared for and provided for. Just trust him and follow him. This is the first step in a big shift for this widow because she goes and, and she does it. So she, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry. 
in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. If you're at that place where it feels like everyone is against you, where it feels like you've used all of your energy just to wake up in the morning, where you understand if you're someone who follows Christ that you are called to make a difference and to share his love, but you don't know how to even take the next step forward, what God is saying to you here is he's got you. He will provide what you need. He will sustain you as you go forward and trust him. And what he's saying is, if you're someone who doesn't know him, and you feel like you've tried searching everywhere for that love, that, that support, that help that you need, and, and no one's coming through for you. If you've looked through life and, and you feel like there are no answers to what you're going through, what God is saying to you is, turn to me, trust me, because I love you. And I will provide for you. I will send my son for you so that you can have life, that life that you're looking for. He's speaking to Elijah and the widow here in the, in the same move. And what he's saying to them is, a handful of flour and a little olive oil is all you need if you trust in me. You see, you might feel like you have so little left And God is saying, use it. Use it to glorify me. Trust me. Take that step forward. Keep serving. And I'm going to make sure that you have a reminder of that love that I have for you tomorrow. I'm going to make sure that you have that energy when that conversation begins and you get to share the gospel with someone. I'm going to make sure I push you through as you continue to serve and love those kids who are coming this summer. I feel like I don't have a lot to give. But God says, if you give and you keep trusting me, then I'll keep working and doing what I'm doing, and you will get to be a part of it. You will know the love, the joy, the peace that comes in trusting me and seeing my kingdom grow and saying, I was a part of that. Maybe I was a little part of it, but I was a part of it because I kept trusting. I kept going. And the thing that's amazing about this is there's no giant expansion of her supplies. It's not like she trusted God and then she had a year supply of flour and a year supply of olive oil. It was no, every day you wake up and you trust that that's going to be there again. I will give you enough for what you need right now. And when it's the next moment, I'll give you enough for that too. We often want that, that huge supply of flour, that huge supply of oil. We want to know that we're going to be safe. We want to feel comfortable And that's not what God is promising here. He's saying, use what you have right now and trust that tomorrow I'm going to give you what you need then too. And it's going to stretch you and it's going to be challenging. But I promise you that you have what you need in me. And I believe there's another warning here too that us as a church, especially this church, probably need to be aware of. I think a lot of us operate like we have a whole year's supply of flour and oil. And we're just burning ourselves out using everything we have, but using more than we have, more than what God's promised us, and we need to be careful. God is promising enough that if we're faithful to what he's called us to, he will give us enough, but we need to make sure that we're not overexerting ourselves and using everything we have, and then some, and ruining our opportunity to continue to serve. We need to find that balance of rest and work, work and rest. We need to make sure that our, our, 
our mission is not just temporary, but it's long, and we're going to be sustained through that process. But we need to make sure we're coming back to God to be refilled, that we're giving that space and that time where we are being renewed by God to move forward to the next day. There's a, a, a warning here that you're going to use what I've given you and then come back to me and rest, knowing that I will push you forward again. You need to come back and make sure your, your flour is refilled, your oil is refilled. We need to know that it's God who is doing this work, not us. We're going to be faithful with what we have and trust in the Lord and come back to him to be refilled every single time. Knowing that out of his love and his care, he will sustain us even in the most difficult times that we have. And then as we move forward, things start to turn in this account that we have of Elijah's life. See, the, the next thing that we're going to see is that we need to know if we're living out our lives for God in a world that is far from him, we need to understand that the Lord brings life. That's the next thing I want you to see, and this is essential to what Elijah is doing. We need to know that the Lord brings life. You see, as Elijah met with this widow, they were sustained in that they had food every day, but her life actually takes a turn for the worse here. My back. We'll see how we go through. Are we getting there? All right, we're good. Okay, I got a thumbs up. If it's wrong, it's Paul Jenkins' fault. All right, okay, let's move forward. So verse 17 says this. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse. That was gross. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She asks, Elijah, why are you here? Did you come just to point out my sin to me? Just to show me all the ways in my life that I'm failing to live out for God? Did you come to show me all the things I've done wrong and then bring death into my life? And I think the unfortunate reality is part of the reason why we as a church have had a hard time making an impact in our world around us is that we've often brought a message of death instead of a message of life. How many people have you met who get nervous when you tell them a Christian because the church has only ever told them everything they've ever done wrong? How often has judgment been the primary thing that people have heard from God's followers? Working with, with youth and, and teens, I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with people who think that, oh, the church is only going to tell me all the ways I'm screwed up. And the reality is, everybody already knows the things they feel bad about. Everybody already knows the ways that they fall short. And when we focus on bringing that, that word of, of, of judgment and sin, and we're ignoring that, that word of life, 
there's no reason for them to turn to God. They already know they're flawed. And this is what she's saying to Elijah. She's worried. Did you come here just to make me feel bad and then bring pain into my life? The number of teens that I've, I've met and talked to who would say, I'm interested in this Jesus thing, but let me go live my life fully, and then maybe I'll turn back to this thing, right? And their idea that they hear is the church is this restrictive, sad, judgmental place. So let me go live life, and then I'll come back. And what we want people to hear is that's not actually life. That's just bringing you more chaos. That's just bringing you more sadness, more feelings of I'm not good enough. I'm not living out who I'm meant to be. It's not bringing you value and purpose. What you want people to hear is that come to God because in God alone you will have life. And look at what God does here. Right? She says, did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And then what does Elijah do? He says, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, which means he went outside, walked outside, went up the staircase that's outside and up to the top where he was probably staying, outside of, of the actual home where the woman was. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. This is Elijah knowing that God is about life, bringing life to this person. It's interesting that the widow in this story so far, Elijah has made it very clear you're not an Israelite. This is not the God that you are worshiping right now. And, and even while she's talking to him, she, she calls Yahweh your God. This is your God, Elijah. And then she's worried about the, the sin and the, the death and the chaos that has come into her life. What does Elijah do? He says, this is not going to end with death. This is not going to end with sin. He takes the boy and he prays because he knows, and this is a quote from, from Ian W. Proven, uh, he knows even the underworld is not a place from which the Lord can be barred. Even death can't stop the Lord, right? There is nothing that can separate us from, from God's love. This is what Elijah is showing this is the first time where we're going to witness a resurrection, a, a giving of life in the Bible, in Scripture, to somebody who has died. And, and look at how intense Elijah is on this. This is a quote from Dale Ralph Davis. It says, note how he picks up the widow's distress from verse 18, turns it into prayer, and pleads from her point of view. Do we ever pray like that? I got to tell you, in, in researching and, and studying this week to talk on this passage, that was the most challenging thing I read in any commentary this week. Is that how we pray? Is that how we pray for the lost and the suffering, for those far from God, where, where we take their needs and their cries from their heart and we turn it into prayer and plead on their behalf, from their point of view, where we feel what they feel, do we pray like that for people? And, and, and in this prayer, it's Elijah cries out. How often are our prayers crying out? 
Elijah is so concerned in his love for these people that he spent this time with that he's crying out for them, pleading for them, giving everything he has in his spirit for them, serving them and trying to answer their greatest cries and their needs, giving them a physical answer to what they're looking for. And in so doing, he's going to do something even greater for them. There's a lot of us in this room who love people who are far from the Lord, people who aren't following him, maybe people who have walked out of the church and and have said, that I don't want anything to do with that sin and that death that keeps getting shoved in my face. And Elijah says, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to plead. I'm going to cry out to God that you would experience his life, his grace, his mercy. And I'm going to do everything I can to show you that love. In that how I act with you, how I care for you, you will see how God loves you and cares for you. And he pleads for everywhere that mic comes in handy, pleads for this woman and her son. And says this the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the first time. It's not your God. It's not, oh, the Lord, the God of Israel. She just says, the Lord. I know that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. She experiences that life. She experiences the grace of God. She sees the love and care. And yes, people need to know that the lives that they're, they're living right now are death. They need to know that the lives that they're living right now will never give them that joy, will never give them that energy. But what they need to hear the most is that the Lord loves them. The Lord cares for them. The Lord sent their son for them so that they could experience life. See, what we see as we read through this, this is the last thing I want to say as we're going to move into a time of communion, is that the word of the Lord does not fail. The word of the Lord does not fail over and over in this passage. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it talks about the word of the Lord. It talks about the Lord speaking. It's all about God's word. That's what's going to bring rain. That's what's going to bring life. That's what's going to make a difference in, in these people's lives and sustain these people. The word of the Lord does not fail. And what we see is the message of the word of the Lord is life. And God showed us the word will not fail when he made that word become flesh, when he sent his son. See, in in John chapter 1, starting in verse 12, this is what we read. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. If you're in that spot where you feel tired, where you feel like your gas tank is empty and you have all of this work in front of you, if you feel like life that you've been looking for has not given you the answers you were hoping, if you're stuck and you're looking for a way to move forward, you need to know the word of the Lord. 
because God has called us, called us to himself to experience the love that he has and to share that love with others. And as we seek to do that, so that people would know the love of God, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. There's going to be obstacles. We're going to feel like we're, we're running out of energy. But God will sustain us and sustain us in the most difficult times, giving us what we need to move forward so that we can share that word of love that people need so that they can turn their lives around and turn to the Lord and experience the grace and the truth, truth that he has, which is given to us through the word becoming flesh. And on the cross, giving us his perfect righteousness and taking our sin onto himself. So the story wouldn't end in death. The story wouldn't end in sin. But those who believe and trust in him, those who take that step of faith and and give what they have in their life to the Lord, would know that grace and that truth and that life. So I'm going to invite the the band to come up, and we're going to go into a time of communion where we celebrate. And we're going to remember... The word become flesh who gave everything he had so that we could have life. Gave everything that, that he had so that we can know that love of God. And we're going to pass out the, the cup and the bread. And we're going to pass it out. And I encourage you, you don't take it. I'm going to come back up. I'll lead us in that time. But we're going to take that and remember the sacrifice that Jesus has given so that we would have life. So that we would experience that love. So that we would know his truth. And we would remember his, his body and his blood given for us. But I do want to read this warning um, as we pass it around. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, this is what Paul says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is something that we do as Christ followers to remember what Christ has done for us. And and what, what we're seeing here is that if this is not true for you, I'd encourage you to take this time and think about it. Think about what we read today in the life of Elijah and the love and the, the, the provision that God has for you. That when, when no one else around you loves you or, or cares for you, there's still the Father who loves you and will care for you. Think about that. But, but if you're not a believer, let that basket go by you because this is something that we do in acknowledgement of what Christ has done in our hearts in his saving grace. And if there's tension, if, if there's a disagreement between you and somebody else in this church family, we want to make sure that we, we take this blood and, and take this body and, and remember it as one unified family. And so go and, and solve those issues before you take and remember so that we can do this together. And as we do this, remember the love of God who gave everything for us as we seek to follow him. So we'll pass it around, and I will come up and lead us in that.